I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Was the sudden death of a teenage girl at a Christian boarding school an isolated incident, or was it part of a culture of abuse? This is the Naomi Woods story. Megan, we have a new topic to explore today. I was getting that from your introduction. And again, a case I don't know of. I've been aware of the issue we're discussing today, but I somehow never connected it to women in crime. Have you ever read the book Stolen by Elizabeth Gilpin? Someone just recommended this in our book club. And I think it was going to go on the list. But is this case about that book or vice versa? It's not, but similar issues. Ah, yes. I know the issues in that book, so I think I understand why you're covering this, and I know you read that book. I would suggest you read it for a book club. I think that would be a great one. Okay. I read this book years ago and kind of forgot about it, and then I was listening to my very favorite podcast, Armchair Expert, with Dax and Monica, and they interviewed Paris Hilton. And Paris Hilton has just released a memoir, which, of course, I then ran out to buy. That's right. And a lot of what she talks about is very relevant to today's case as well. Okay, interesting. But before we get into Naomi's story, I want to remind our listeners that we will be at CrimeCon in just a few weeks. Can't believe we're so close. or It's getting so close already. And when you are buying your ticket for CrimeCon, make sure to use our code WOMEN to get 10% off your standard badge. We look forward to seeing you there. Very excited. All right, Megan, let's talk about Naomi Woods. Naomi was born in 2003 in West Africa in Liberia, which is Africa's oldest republic. 
And while there's no information available on the first two years of her life, at age two, she was adopted by an American family from Vermont, Al and Debbie Woods. Al and Debbie had met at a small Christian college just outside of Boston. And after they graduated, they decided that it was time to start a family. Now, the two would settle in the small town of Bernard, Vermont, which is a town where Al's family had been living for generations. And Al's family business, which was Woods, Vermont Syrup, was located just one town over. The couple would go on to have three children, Neremiah, Jackson, and Christian. The family of five was very happy, but the family was not yet complete. A couple of years later, Al and Debbie decided that they wanted to open up their home to children in need, and they began looking into adoption. In 2005, Debbie and her sister took a trip to Liberia, and that is where Debbie met and adopted two-year-old Naomi and her one-year-old sister, Zoe. It's so nice when children are adopted and they are able to be adopted with a sibling. Oh, it's so heartbreaking when they're not. So, yeah. Debbie took her two adopted daughters back to Vermont, where they would meet the rest of the family. And the girls seemed to quickly acclimate to their new homes. And they were all really one big happy family. In fact, the new family was so happy that Debbie and Al decided they wanted to adopt yet again. And they brought home another Liberian child a son named Bill, who was nine years old. And this would be about two years after they brought home the two little girls. It's quite a family. It is. And, you know, they lived in a predominantly white neighborhood and three of their six children were black, but they were really accepted with open arms. The children were very happy in their home and everyone in the community treated them with love and kindness. The family also was very involved in the local community and also the church. Now, Naomi and Zoe, the two sisters, they were very close and they had even shared a room. However, as they got older, they would become two very different people and they would develop different interests and eventually they kind of grew apart a little bit. And in addition to growing apart with her sister, Naomi would also fight with her mother as she got older. And Debbie would later state in an interview that she felt like she was never doing right by her. Now, Debbie was worried that she was letting Naomi down and so much so that she would join an adoption support group and she would also seek out family coaching hoping that this would help her and Naomi improve their relationship. But unfortunately, Naomi started to misbehave even more. And after all these other options weren't working, her parents felt like they were no longer able to help her. So they started looking into other options, and they would end up sending her to Kern Hatton Homes for Children. Now, this was what's known as a charitable home slash school. This one had been around since 1894, and it was for both boys and girls ages 6 to 15 who were affected by tragedy, social or economic hardship. And this was located in Westminster, Vermont. How bad when you say acting out like how bad was this situation? I'm not sure, to be honest, Megan. I didn't read any reports of violent behavior. I can tell you that Naomi did have a history of sexual abuse and also depression Mm. and anxiety. So perhaps they were just trying to get her the help that she needed. Yeah, okay. Now, the problem with this school is, you know, the Woods were not aware of where they were sending their daughter because right before they enrolled Naomi, the school had been investigated by the state for allegations of abuse. In fact, Megan, they had allegations of abuse that dated all the way back to the 1940s. Now, we're talking not just one or two allegations. There were over 50 survivors represented by five different law firms, all bringing forth allegations of sex abuse. And actually, in 2021, one of their former employees was indicted on some of the charges. Okay. Now, this investigation was not highly publicized, probably due to a good PR firm. So, you know, the Woods had no idea 
that they were sending their daughter to a potentially dangerous environment. So luckily, as far as the Woods knew, Naomi did not suffer any of the abuse some of the other children suffered at that particular home. Okay. And once she got home, the family, they were hoping that maybe she had turned a corner because they wanted their child home with them. They didn't want her to stay at this home. It was just temporary. Okay. Unfortunately, Naomi's behavior had not changed and she continued to act out. She was caught stealing alcohol from a local store where she worked. She also would often lie to her parents about where she was going and who she was hanging out with. And she even would illegally drive a car that the family had. At first, her parents thought this was maybe just normal teenage rebellion. But one night in 2019, Naomi was illegally driving that family car I mentioned, and she flipped the car into a ditch. Now, she was pulled out by a neighbor, and although not seriously hurt, this was the straw that broke the camel's back for the family. Yeah. And Alan Debbie realized that Naomi's behavior had potentially become a danger to herself and others. And they once again started looking into alternatives. And this is when they found the Lakeland Girls Academy in Lakeland, Florida. Now, this was a faith-based boarding school. That's pretty far from home. How did they wind up coming about that school? given the distance? That's a good question. The Academy in Florida was actually recommended by the Adult and Teen Challenge, and that's based out of the New England area. And actually, that's a really interesting organization. I looked into that organization, and they've been around since 1958. And it actually started with a pastor from Pennsylvania who says that he got a message from God saying that he should go to New York to help teenagers who are affiliated with gangs. So he did just that eventually purchasing a home in Brooklyn, which became a refuge for troubled teens and addicts. Oh, wow. So now this is a worldwide ministry with more than 200 centers in the U.S. and centers abroad. So they were a hub that would recommend places for families. The purpose of Lakeland Girls Academy was to rehabilitate troubled teens through teaching lessons from the Bible and practicing Christianity. Now, this was a small boarding school, only about 20 to 40 girls at any given time. And it was just girls 8 to 12 years old. And it was for girls who were struggling in some way. Okay. And so Debbie went to visit the school and she thought it would be a perfect fit for Naomi. She really liked what she saw. The school offered many activities such as horse therapy. Um. And they even had in-family counseling where parents can come and join their children in counseling services. In addition, this was actually convenient for them because one of their sons was attending college in Florida. Oh. So they figured they would be able to visit Naomi and her brother in the same trip. So this seemed like a good option for them. And on February 4th of 2020, Debbie brought Naomi to Lakeland Girls Academy and she signed all of the proper drop-off paperwork. And Megan, there was a lot of paperwork. Oh, I'm sure. Do you know how long is this a program that like you determine someone's finished when they're rehabilitated or is there a specific length on this? I believe that it depends on the child. If I recall, a lot of them that I looked into require at least six months. Right. Sure. And then from there, I think it depends on the situation. Now, one of the forms that Debbie had to sign was called the Christian Conciliation and Arbitration Agreement. Now, this document would become important. Sounds complicated. What is it? The name doesn't give it away to me. No. So the document detailed that if parents had any disagreements about the way their daughter was being cared for while at their school, or if anything happened to them, the issue would be resolved using Bible-based mediation 
and the school would not be held legally responsible. Wow. So in layman's terms, it essentially keeps the family from taking legal action against the school. And also it made clear that they would solve problems within the church's rules rather than legal rules. Well, I mean, that's something you have to really consider before making a decision like this, I would say. That's a huge factor. Yeah, I mean, this would maybe set off red flags for some people. But something I learned is that a lot of institutions have what's known as hold harmless agreements. And this is often used as a release of liability in a contract, and it protects one party from injury or damages caused by another party. So I never knew much of these, but apparently they are not as rare as I would have thought. And Debbie didn't think anything of this form. I mean, the school seemed to have a good reputation. I don't know if it was just something she just trusted them or maybe she just didn't, you know, think much of it. But she signed the form and she didn't think she would have anything to worry about. She was probably also very desperate at this point, you know, hoping to find any place to help them heal their child. Yes, I agree. I bet a lot of parents have a sense of desperation while they're filling out these forms. So for the next about three and a half months or so, they would visit Naomi regularly. But then the pandemic, the COVID pandemic hit, Mm -hmm. they no longer were allowed to have in-person visits. So Naomi was only allowed a supervised phone call with her parents once every other week. But regardless of this limited contact, Debbie and Al thought that Naomi was thriving at Lakeland Girls Academy. They really had no reason to think otherwise. That's very limited, though. One supervised phone call every other week, I would think think at least one a week at the very least. That's not much at all contact with your family. It also seems a little bit counter to what they were promised, like family counseling sessions. Exactly. But then just to play devil's advocate, maybe part of the therapeutic process is if her parents were a part of, you know, the stress she was experiencing, maybe part of that process was to have limited contact with them. I'm not sure. Okay. But they had received only one slightly concerning email from the school, and this would be on April 15th, 2020. This particular email stated that Naomi had been suffering from some stomach pains. And the email was basically asking the parents if they knew of anything that could help Naomi or if they knew the origin of, you know, these stomach aches. Okay. After that email, the Woods did not receive any word from the school again on Naomi's health. And so this led them to assume that all was okay. But Megan, as we will soon learn, things were far from okay. What was going on? Well, on the morning of May 19th, 2020, so this is about a month after that email, Mm -hmm. the family were sitting around a campfire in their yard when Debbie received a phone call from someone at the Lakeland Girls Academy. The person on the phone informed her that Naomi had been found unresponsive in her bedroom and was being taken to the hospital. Now, a staff member had called 911 telling them that they had found a girl unresponsive, that she had been sick, she had rolled off the bed, her lips were white, and she did not look like she was moving. The staff member was instructed and informed on how to start chest compressions. Oh, my gosh. Meanwhile, Debbie and Al formed a prayer circle with their children and prayed that their daughter would be okay. However, just 45 minutes later... Debbie received another call from the Academy's coordinator telling her that Naomi had passed away. Oh my gosh, I was not expecting you to go to that. Yeah, and Debbie, of course, broke down sobbing and handed the phone off to one of her other children. (laughs) 
I don't need to tell you, the family was distraught over the loss of 17-year-old Naomi. But at this point, they believed that it wasn't anyone's fault. You know, Lakeland Girls Academy had done everything possible to help their daughter as far as they were concerned. Then they saw their daughter's death just as a tragedy. Well, what kind of tragedy they think caused it, though? We'll get there in just a moment. We'll talk about the autopsy. Okay. At this point, the family was just told she was found unresponsive. They were waiting for an autopsy to come back to reveal what the cause of death was. Okay. I remember I said the family didn't believe that the school had any fault here. So much so that after the funeral, Al, the father, he came out with a video on his business's website thanking the Academy for handling the emergency in the best way they could. The family would travel to Florida to collect Naomi's belongings and to see her dorm room. You know, they wanted to see where their daughter was found unresponsive. Sure. And that night, the Polk County Sheriff's Office called the family to let them know that there would be an investigation. Now, this was surprising to them, but they were informed that this was just protocol when a young person dies mysteriously of what is classified as natural causes. Oh, so this is... SIDS or SADS, sudden adult death syndrome, or... Well... It's not, it's not. It's somewhere in between, right? They're just saying a sudden syndrome where we can't explain it? Yeah, but they're saying they need to investigate as per protocol. Okay. But six months later, the autopsy report came back, and the medical examiner determined that Naomi had died of a seizure disorder. Is there a history of seizure disorder that her family was aware of? Naomi had never been diagnosed with such a disorder, but according to her parents, she had had two seizures in the past. One was when she was at a haunted house and she was exposed to strobe lighting, and the other was a time at school. Of course, like any parents, after these seizures occurred, Debbie and Al took her to see a neurologist, and they went to Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. She was examined, but the doctors there could not find any evidence that Naomi had any underlying condition, say like epilepsy, Mm -hmm. that would be causing these seizures. And at the time that Naomi left to go to this school, she had not had another seizure. And the family just thought that those seizures were just isolated incidences. But then it also would make sense that they would accept that she died of a seizure disorder, knowing that she had some history of seizures. Exactly. It definitely didn't bring up any red flags or alarm bells. Right. The Polk County Sheriff's Office did not press criminal charges on the school. And the Woods, again, truly believe that the Academy had done its best to take care of their daughter. Mm Mm-hmm. Naomi's death was seen as a sad and untimely tragedy that came from an underlying, potentially undiagnosed medical issue. And the Woods family mourned and tried to move forward in the wake of their grief. However, one year later, the Woods' lives were turned completely upside down when they were contacted by the DCF, which is the Department of Children and Families. They were told that there was a further investigation underway into their daughter's death, and it had revealed that her death was partly due to the negligent and poor treatment that she was receiving from the Lakeland Girls Academy. Now, this was news to them. They had no reason to believe the Academy had any fault in this situation. Mm -hmm. But the Academy had actually been being accused of mistreatment and neglectful behavior for years, even before Naomi attended the school. And of course, this was unbeknownst to her parents. Testimonials by self-described survivors were posted on the website The Unsilenced Project, which is a nonprofit that seeks to stop institutional child abuse. Now, these testimonials outline physical and psychological abuse, medical neglect, humiliating punishment, and religious indoctrination. In fact, Naomi's roommate would come out publicly 
and talk about how oppressive the environment was, how it was like being in prison, how they suffered harsh punishments for small infractions. She talked about communal bedrooms with no doors and cameras recording them at all times, cult-like behavior. However, Teen Challenge, again, the organization that's in charge of schools like the Lakeland Girls Academy, they kept quiet on all these accusations being brought by former students. And DCF would continue their investigation. However, it wasn't until July of 2021 when it would come to light that there was more going on. You see, the Woods' oldest son, Neremiah, received a Facebook message from someone asking, quote, have you seen the TikTok that is blowing up about the report about your sister? Of course, he did not know what they were talking about, but he got online and he was able to access a full report written by Dr. Carol Lilly, the Florida Child Protection Team's medical director. Now, the report stated that back in April of 2020, Naomi had asked to see the school's doctor to talk about some chronic stomach pain that she had been experiencing. The school would deny her request to see a doctor. In fact, she was never taken to see a doctor or given any access to medical professionals, although she would continually complain of excruciating pain. School officials had given Naomi Pepto-Bismol each time she came in. And according to the report, this would be over 20 times. So this poor girl was looking for help. Instead of them taking her to a doctor or investigating further, each of the times this poor child would come in, they would give her the Pepto and send her on her way. I wonder if this is a case of they just don't care. They're trying to save costs. They're just cruel. There's so many options here. And it reminds me of the lack of adequate care in certain prisons, too, and how many prisoners were sick for so long or needed operations that were not receiving proper medical attention and still don't in many cases. Yeah. And, you know, this case would definitely open up the conversation and open up Mm -hmm. the floodgates to other allegations of this school and many others that would ignore Mm -hmm. similar complaints by students. Apparently, the night of May 18th, Naomi's symptoms suddenly took a turn for the worse. And that's when she started vomiting violently all throughout the night. The report stated, quote, staff members made the child get up for meals and fed her soup, as that is their protocol. They also would pray for her to get better. And as her roommates would later say that she was extremely ill and staff members were not taking it very seriously. So is this also because they're such a faith-based school and they believe like, you know, instead of medicine healing per se, God will intervene? Yeah, it could be. I don't know. I mean, they did give her some medication, so they weren't anti-medication. Yeah, yeah. But it's unclear why they didn't seek, you know, additional medical help. When she was found unresponsive on May 19th, the staff members attempted CPR. That's after they called 911. Unfortunately, it was just an hour later that Naomi was pronounced dead. The reports concluded that because of the school's lack of proper medical care and neglect of their students, Naomi died. If she had been sent to a doctor a month earlier when she started complaining of her stomach issues, she likely could have gotten the help that she needed. Why? What was wrong? What was the stomach issue? I don't know, but it you know there is something called abdominal epilepsy. There's also... I read that gastrointestinal dysfunction can increase the risk of seizures. So maybe... Oh, I see. Okay. Maybe these things were related. Maybe she had a seizure because of severe dehydration from vomiting. I don't know. Any number of possibilities here. But point being, if she had gotten the medical attention earlier, this all could have been prevented. The report would uncover some other issues going on. It would comment on the way the school was run. 
Apparently, Lakeland had no protocol set in place to evaluate symptoms of illness in their students, and there was no documentation of Naomi receiving any type of mental health counseling during her three-month stay. If you recall, a huge part of the reason her parents sent her there is because they wanted her to be in a therapeutic environment, and now they're finding out that in her over three months, she had not received any therapeutic intervention. That's very disturbing. What was she doing the whole time? Yeah, we'll find out. Dr. Lilly also made note of many of the school's forms of punishment, which could be mentally damaging to their students. One specific punishment was called shunning. And this is where the staff would not let the girls interact or speak to each other for long periods of time. And this was often done as a punishment. In fact, they would get different color bracelets. And based on their color bracelet, girls knew who they could or could not talk to. So here you have a place that's supposed to be therapeutic, and now you're not letting there be any interaction between the peers. This is shaming, too. Shunning and shaming. It is. And other punishments included writing lines of scripture hundreds and hundreds of times when they broke a rule. And there were several reports of students being ignored when complaining of medical issues. After reading Dr. Lilly's report... The Woods family also remembered something strange about when they went down to Lakeland to recover Naomi's belongings. Dr. Lilly's report had stated that Naomi had been moved to the bottom bunk by her roommates the night that she was vomiting, and her roommates corroborated this. However, when the staff took the family to the room after her death, they pointed to the top bunk and said that that is where Naomi was found unresponsive. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but this little discrepancy made them question, like, what else? Could Lakeland Girls Academy be trying to hide or are they trying to cover up something? Yeah, that makes sense. But of course, the school continued to insist that they did everything they could for Naomi both before and after her death. Although they denied wrongdoing, in February of 2021, the school announced that they made some policy changes so that their school would be safer for their students. They reported adding a new position of medical coordinator who would now study the students' medical records and make sure that the girls received medical treatments that they needed while at the school. In addition, the school said that they would turn away students that needed mental health support because the school did not have the resources to help students in that area, which makes no sense to me. That doesn't make any sense given their mission statement, but okay. At least now they're not falsely advertising what they provide. Okay. Despite these changes, enrollment steadily decreased and former students continue to speak out against some of the unusual and damaging punishments that the school inflicted. And this surprised me, but after DFC's investigation came out, the Woods family received a lot of hate. There are many comments on TikTok that blame Naomi's parents for her death because they said it's their fault because they should not have sent her to a place like Lakeland Girls Academy in the first place. That doesn't surprise me that they would blame the family. No, of course, it doesn't surprise me because we know how mean strangers can be on social media. Al realized that the video he posted on his company website, you know, the one that acknowledged all the academy had done for them. He realized that was still there, so he immediately took that down. Okay. In addition, the family now decided they would go into private mediation with Teen Challenge. And if you recall, Teen Challenge was the organization behind Lakeland Girls Academy. The one that was recommending this academy, correct? Um, No, not the one that was recommending. It was more like the parent company. Oh, okay. It was like the organization that backed the academy. Okay. The Woods family wanted them to take responsibility for what happened to Naomi They wanted an apology, and they wanted them to promise to make their program better. But 
Instead of apologizing, Teen Challenge offered to exchange money for the family's silence. The family refused, and of course, the mediation then fell apart. You ever see the movie A Civil Action with John Travolta? Mm-mm. It's based on a true story, but it's about, I think, an electric company is, you know, dumping materials into the water and people got sick. And I remember in this movie, the lead plaintiff is saying all she wants is an apology. And he turns around and he says, money is the apology. Oh, geez. It's it's a haunting line, but it's it's a way they... It's not really an apology. It's just, you know, we're going to pay you off to please be quiet. And that's how these things usually work. Did the family accept this or did they rebuff the settlement? What happened? Well, as many would, they filed a wrongful death lawsuit in civil court. So on April 27, 2022, in Polk County, they filed this against Don and Holly Williams. Now, Don and Holly were the head administrators of Lakeland Girls Academy at the time of Naomi's death. They also filed a suit against Teen Challenge of Florida and Adult and Teen Challenge USA. Now, Adult and Teen Challenge is the one that recommended Lakeland Girls Academy, the one that's based in New England. Yeah. All right. The school tried to get the lawsuit dismissed based on the hold harmless contract that Debbie had signed. Remember when Naomi enrolled? Yes. And again, this said that any issue the family had with the school would be dealt with in a Christian matter and not through legal means. And? A court date was set for September 21st, 2022, to see if the suit would move forward. I have not found any recent information about the progress of the wrongful death suit and, you know, where it is in the court process. However, I can tell you that Lakeland Girls Academy closed its door in the spring of 2022. So did they close their doors specifically because of the attention Naomi's case got, or was it because of the culmination of all these other cases and this was just the straw that broke the camel's back? Do we know? The answer is yes, both directly and indirectly, because it was partially due to the controversy behind Naomi's death, but also the decline in enrollment that stemmed from the controversy of Naomi's death. Because they received all... Which makes sense. You know, although I hadn't really heard of this case when I was doing research, I was happy to see that it was somewhat widely reported compared to other cases that we sometimes see swept under the rug. Sure. Now, Naomi's brother, Naramiah, along with other members of the family, now they have made it their mission to raise awareness about the abuse and neglect that some teens experience in these types of religious schools and programs. In fact, Megan, he currently travels the country to speak on these issues and to bring regulation to these programs. He even recently traveled to Washington, D.C. and spoke to bipartisan lawmakers about the issue and held a nighttime vigil in the city in Naomi's honor. Wow. You know, it is nice when families become advocates after, because so many families who've suffered these tragedies, they go out. Mm -hmm. We've covered so many of these cases where a family member becomes the face of kind of a movement and really advocates Mm -hmm. and does a lot of good. Yeah, he's, he's doing even more because after he finishes college, he plans on going to law school because he wants to help reform what's called the troubled teen industry. And I'll go into that in just a moment. Okay. I just want to give you one more point about what the family is currently doing. All right. They're lobbying for the proposed federal legislation that's known as the Stop Institutional Child Abuse Act. It would strengthen protections for young people who live in these care settings, such as, you know, residential treatment centers or therapeutic border schools. I think that's great legislation. You know, there has been similar legislation that has failed to gain traction multiple times over the past decade, but people are more hopeful about this one because the Woods have met with both Democratic and Republican lawmakers. They have been speaking at press conferences, and they also have been pairing with Paris Hilton, 
because Paris Hilton has become quite right. outspoken because she experienced abuse at a residential program in Utah when she was a teenager. Yes, I recall that. Did you see the documentary? No, I don't know who told me if it was James or someone else was telling me, you know, she was on that reality show with Nicole Richie. Oh, yeah. Oh, I told you this because I was telling you about the Dax interview, right? Well, I guess she was talking about the fact that, you know, she was pretending like she didn't know how to use a mop or a broom. But in reality, she had been cleaning and doing other types of labor at this school. So that was kind of an act. But that's the only reason I'm connecting these two. I didn't know anything about her background with this. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, Paris Hilton's memoir, I have not seen the documentary, but apparently the documentary talks about her experiences as well. Now, I just mentioned the troubled teen industry. Now, this was something I didn't know much about. I certainly did not know there was a name for it. But, you know, abuse in these kind of facilities is a widespread epidemic throughout the United States. And just to give you an idea of how big this industry is, At any given time, there are between 120,000 and 200,000 young people who are receiving what's known as troubled treatment. And so the troubled teen industry, it's a term that's used to describe a broad range of these youth residential programs. And the aim is at helping these, quote, troubled teenagers. So this could include, you know, residential treatment centers, boot camps, therapeutic boarding schools. I don't know if you've heard of wilderness programs. Those fall under here. I have heard of them. Yeah. Okay. Now, what people may not know and what I certainly did not know is that this is a multi-billion dollar industry that claims to rehabilitate and teach young people through various practices. And they're usually privately run, which often means largely unregulated. Now, you have these vulnerable young people who are often struggling with mental illness, substance abuse, learning disabilities, probably more than one of these. Mm -hmm. And they are sent to these schools that are supposed to help them, but oftentimes they're making things much worse. As of recently, this troubled teen industry has encountered many scandals. Besides like institutional corruptions, there's been child abuse and of course deaths. Naomi is not the only case. There are several cases that are very similar to Naomi about young people who die while they're at these types of schools. So why do these religious schools believe that these harsh punishments will rehabilitate troubled teens? I mean, is this the treatment that they really need? Or do these young people need strong family figures in their life? And while, you know, faith in a certain religion may be able to help, it's possible that having too strict of a punishment may just make the behavior even worse. I mean, this is the origin of prisons in general. Remember, the original prisons that were designed were designed with hard labor, religion, kind of learning through obedience, silence. So these are almost the core principles of our original prisons developed, you know, in the 1700s. Obviously, can't have a situation in which there is all hard labor and no medical attention either. There has to be a balance at these schools as well. And if they promote treatment, then they have to actually provide treatment that is mental health treatment, counseling, cognitive behavioral therapy, all of the above. And so there probably should be, I believe, in chores, tasks, mm-hmm. schedules, structures, of course, in some of this, but it should never be extreme and never should be without the guidance from very highly qualified medical personnel, especially when involving children. And they should be regulated. That's the problem we see with private prisons as well. When you have these private institutions, they often go unregulated and that leads to even more issues. 
I agree. The regulation and oversight and accountability would be extremely helpful and required in these situations. Another interesting thing that Abigail brought up when she was looking at my script was she brought up this idea of if there's something about the separation of church and state, like maybe they get away with these kinds of hold harmless agreements because legally it gets difficult with the government coming in and telling a church how to do things. So it may be harder to regulate. I never thought of that. I thought that was an interesting point. And of course, this makes it more complicated. We see this a lot with schools, you know, religious schools teaching or not teaching certain curriculum. It's highly complicated is what it is. And too much for us to delve into or to get into in this episode. There's so many different sides to that story. It's definitely not a black or white argument, as most of our discussions we have aren't. Agreed. Before we get going today, Megan, I just want to give our listeners two places they can go to if they want to learn more about this topic and also if they want to take action. So unsilence.org, which I referenced earlier, it's a really great reference because not only can you read survivor stories and get more information on the troubled teen industry, you could also donate and search for programs because there are legitimate programs. Some young people do need to go to these types of schools and they are very beneficial. And I'm sure many of our listeners have been to a school like a boarding school or a religious school that was b- very beneficial and even possibly saved their life. Of course. So It is important to get the help you need for yourself or your children or your loved ones. But if you, you know, you just want to know where you're going. So you can search programs to get more information. You can also go to wewarnthem.org, which is a campaign. It's basically a grassroots movement that calls on state, local and federal officials to take action to end the troubled teen industry. And I think when we say the troubled teen industry, it's talking about institutional abuse of vulnerable and at-risk youth. Again, there are some places that are doing a great job, and those places should not shut their doors. But some places, it might be time for them to. Either of those websites, you can educate yourself, you can search different schools, and you can also donate to the cause if you feel so inclined to. That's great. It's a very sad case. I hope to see some strong resolution to it. Glad to hear that the institution closed its doors. And thank you for providing all the resources and, you know, places people can go if they want to or ways they can become involved or more informed. As always, we appreciate it. We appreciate you all joining us today for this important conversation. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include unsilence.org, 7daysvermont.com, Bay News 9, ABC Action News, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, New York Times, and wewarnthem.org. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games.